0: You're listening to the crowdfunding nerds podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now
1: here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey everybody. And welcome to another awesome episode of crowdfunding nerds. I am your host, Andrew Lowen, and I am joined as always by, well, not always seems like he's in the closet more often than not lately, but Rick is back and Sean is now in the closet, but in Sean's stead we have with us Kirk Dennison, the operations manager over at Thunderworks Games. Welcome, Kirk.
2: Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Rick.
1: Let me out
0: of the closet, yay!
1: <laughs> and I promise that's not just a soundbite that that Rick recorded for for this podcast. He's really here. Yeah, so that's the that's our first element of news. Uh, we can just hop into the news because it's going to be pretty short. In in uh, most uh, relevant news, Rick's back sucks.
0: <laughs> and in other relevant news, if you're if you're watching your uh, Google News feed, Apple News feed, et cetera, et cetera, uh, there's some companies stating that shipping is now cheaper overseas. Now, I don't know how true it is, and we're going to probably discuss it a little bit. But uh, mostly, CNBC is reporting that things are cheaper. Inc. Inc. 500s uh, reporting things are cheaper, and maybe we can discuss uh, if it is and or what other costs are involved that they're missing.
1: And I'm really excited to dive into that because Kirk actually suggested this topic and I thought it was so good. Uh, so the topic at hand is logistics in particular, the changes that are happening in the EU are kind of crazy and absolutely affect the way that people are crowdfunding now and you know the way that you might want to plan your crowdfunding stuff in the future. So to me, I- I'm actually personally very interested in what Kirk has to say. He's very experienced with logistics and, you know, not only is he the operations manager of a major publisher in Thunderworks, but I also have a few games um, from from (laughs) you on my shelf. Yes, my company Peacekeeper
2: Games, I've done consulting and publishing for the last seven years prior to coming on full-time at Thunderworks Games. So my Peacekeeper efforts are much diminished, but I've done, published four games myself, and managed logistics worldwide for a half dozen publishers and consulted on well over 25 campaigns for other publishers
1: as well. That's awesome. And, and you consulted on deliverance, which was extremely valuable. I mean, every penny that you were paid, which wasn't many pennies, you know, (laughs) for, you know, as I think about it, it was just worth so much to have that expertise. So. um, And and I
0: saw one of your one of your spreadsheets and I couldn't believe all the details and all the uh, costs that are like involved from going from point a to b in fact it's more like going from point a to z because of all the stuff in between but I couldn't believe the detail on those spreadsheets about every single like where every single penny went and it was ridiculously crazy for those who who are interested in you know maybe doing a, a board game logistics is a crazy operation and it's something you 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 I'm, I'm glad Kirk is here because you really want to look into this aspect. It's sort of forgotten about until you start thinking about moving your game um, because the costs <laughs> are
1: crazy. Yeah, we all just want to make awesome games, but it sucks to have to you know the 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 fulfillment and logistics side of games is. uh a game on its own. And it's not very fun. What depends who you
2: ask. You're just making
1: spreadsheets and I like making spreadsheets. But <laughs> uh, The 1%. So yeah, let's talk, let's get into this topic of logistics and, you know, maybe first thing we could do is dive in a little bit uh, deeper into your background and, you know, what makes you qualified to be in people's ears about this topic. Would you mind sharing?
2: Sure. So I started making board games in 2015 just because I realized there was no good capture the flag board games. So no sooner had I thought of the idea that there is no capture the flag board game than I had a prototype playable within two days, having never even considered making a board game before or having any construct of what, what that was. It was, I guess, a lucky stroke that I happened to have some things around the house that made it quickly easy to make a prototype that was working and was inspired and dragged a friend to the local library and we played in the little kids area and we (laughs) there was something there wasn't that great at the beginning but fast forward realized that there's no guarantee you can make your game at all or the way you want if you don't publish it yourself so then i figured out how to do that all the spare moments i have were reading jamie Stegmeyer's blog posts and james matthew yeah. late james matthew's blog post and soaking all that stuff up way back in so this is 2015 and then i launched my first kickstarter in march of 2016 things went well with that called flag dash sold out it was a modest success then i licensed it to a larger entity ultra pro and decided that i would figure out another game then i had a few failed designs then he came up with another game GearWorks, self-published that and signed another game Brick Don of Kiev did all the development for that. That was a much more ambitious project for anyone who is not familiar with that game. I went from a $25 MSRP game for my first two to a $90 MSRP with miniatures, plastic trays, and more. It's a game on the scythe type of complexity table presence and component
1: build out. It's a really cool auction mechanic that I, that I, that I love. It's like a bidding, it's like a bidding mechanic. It's very cool.
2: And we called it finally Auction Programming. That game's knocking on the door of the top 800 games and BGG is a solid 7.8 rating. But through this time, I have been involved in running businesses for years, separate from a hobby making board games and ran into lots of people in the board game space who just wanna make games and don't wanna run a business. And somehow or the other, I told people, hey, I can do these things for you. And what kept coming up time and time again with other creators was they really really did not want anything to do with freight fulfillment or the like so i just started finding this niche of being the guy that did logistics for other publishers so i would coordinate with their factory and take their backer lists from their pledge manager or kickstarter and i'd work together to come up with a shipping breakdown by region give the details to the factory work with the fulfillment centers around the world and manage all that for these publishers. The first few that I did it for, I didn't charge them very much at all just to prove that I could do it. I'd done it myself several times, but then to do it for several other people. And then too many people started asking me to do that. And I kept doubling my rates and people kept still asking me to do it. (laughs) (laughs) And then I had to stop taking on clients and life changed. But anyways, I've done this type of service over the years for quite a few publishers. And, uh, that's how I ended up getting my full-time role with Thunderworks game because I had done that for quite a few campaigns for them. I did all their work, even through the most recent role, player Adventures and cartographers, heroes campaigns in tandem, which involved booking something like 11 containers at the same time worldwide in the middle of the pandemic and managing fulfillment for over 10,000 orders with over 27 unique SKUs. So, there are, the sky's the limit on how many SKUs you can torture yourself with, but I'd say it was a fairly complex set of projects to handle at once. So needless to say, I've, I've been through a lot with handling freight and fulfillment worldwide, have a lot of context. So that's why you are hearing my voice speak today.
1: Well, so Thunderworks has a Kickstarter that's live right now called Dawn of Ulos. Um, oh, do you want to talk about that one for a little bit? Because you're going to be fulfilling and dealing with logistics on that. And I'd actually love to talk about how... You kind of came up with your numbers for Don of Ulos. Um, but, but what is Don of Ulos? Dawn of Ulos
2: is a economic tile laying game set in our fantasy realm called Ulos. You might know the game name Roleplayer or Cartographers. Those are the flagship products in this universe that's been created by Keith Mateka, owner of Thunderworks. And the Don of Ulos theme is set back in the origins of this universe. The gameplay is reminiscent of the. 1960s game, Acquire, which involves stock corporation or corporations taking over one another and you're buying stock low, selling high. If there's a merger, then your stock isn't worth as much and so on and so forth. So there are some roots in that. On the board, it looks a little bit like something like a small world where there's a bit of a color explosion in different regions. The gist of the game, though, is you're trying to manipulate the different factions on the board getting their stock when they're low, forcing them to have conflicts. The winner comes out on top, goes up in value. The loser drops down to almost nothing. So you're trying to time it that you can sell off your stake in these factions before they go bust or hold on them to the end. And there's a real fun tension of during these conflicts, because you don't own any of the factions, is you're trying to bait your opponents to pay too much to help their preferred factions to win while you don't because if yours wins and you don't have to pay that many cards then your cards are worth more after the conflict it's a real tactical game and it has some swingy elements to it and it's economic so for some people hear those words you run away and that's great don't buy a game that's not for you but for some people this is an awesome game first play for me was an eight out of ten immediately and it will only go up in my opinion it's super fun
1: it's fantastic. You know, it's funny because the first thing I thought about is you want to get people to overextend a little bit too much so that they don't have the resources to buy when it really counts or that, that you can kind of jockey for position that way. Right. I think that's really fun. This I played this game in real life where, you know, if the baby starts crying, brand new baby, my wife and I both <laughs> want to get to that baby at the same time. I actually let her run in front of me because when it comes time to like take a right turn into the baby's room. I just push her a little bit and she overextends down the hallway and I actually make it in first. Um, So that's kind of how I play that game in real life.
0: I I actually haven't played a choir in a a long time, but I really love a choir and it sort of reminds me of like monopoly as well. So it sounds like a really good combination um, of skill and tactics to, uh, to win for that game. I I'm really interested in myself.
1: 60 to 90 minutes for one to five players. Check it out. That's awesome. And uh, we'll, we'll make sure to also include that in the show notes and in um, like our, our community as well on Facebook so that people can check that out. And I think it's got uh, what like two weeks left on Kickstarter. Yes. Well-funded and that sort of thing. So, But yeah, I, I personally really love the art style of role-player, cartographers, that kind of thing. It's um, Cartographers is the game that comes out the most when people don't know... How to play games but i am not gonna play Catan again or you know like i just don't right. want to play a really simple game what's that, wrong with katan you know, my goodness I mean, you no know, i hate on it a lot but we played that game so much it's just you know when you play games so much and get sick of it it's like how it's a classic that's what happens yeah sure. i mean i is.
2: played Katanga over 350 times in my life and i'm like andrew where I feel like I've seen enough and I had a really great time with Catan, but I'm just ready for the next thing. I mean, some games I reach that tipping point at play 15 or 30. So the fact that I made multiple hundreds of plays, I
1: feel like that's a win. I got a lot (laughs) out of that game. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, honestly, I feel like with Catan, it's like the game is won or lost or rather the intrigue of the game for me is at the very start. Where you pick your locations to start, and you set your roads, it's like that. That's where the game is most fun. And then after that, it's just like roll a dice a bunch.
0: <laughs> Apparently, you don't have the rolling skills
1: I have because you know. <laughs> well, my yeah, wife. If you me. add the City's Nights expansion, it changes quite a bit too, though.
0: Yeah, they got but quite a few hard. expansions that are that are just
1: great. Yeah, I heard uh, Cities and Knights was actually how who designed Catan? Was it Uwe Rosenberg? Claustuber. Oh, Klaus Tuber. Uh, he said that Cities and Knights was the original design of Catan, and that he had to pull the the mechanics of Cities and Knights out of the base game, and he thought it was far too simple. And of course, it you know <laughs> the, became that the game.
2: Wow, yeah. that's
1: interesting. I didn't know that. I wanted to chat about. The, the, the campaign and the shipping, you know, one of the most important things that we, that we go over when we deal with consulting for our clients, we always make sure we call them hygiene factors. We make sure that every, you know, of course you have to have a, how to play video. You have to have, you know, other elements, but one of the really, really important elements that if you don't have it, you're going to lose out on a lot of people's money is shipping. You need to have estimates for shipping and it's relatively simple chart that that fits pretty much at the bottom of a kickstarter page but it's very complicated on the back end in if you want to get your shipping numbers right we've heard many stories of companies that have gone belly up because of shipping or that have lost money hand over fist not you know notwithstanding the whole fiasco of 2020 where the numbers went up like crazy it's it's easy to lose a lot of money on shipping. If you have a thousand backers and you're $5 off your shipping prices, you have to figure a way to come up with $5,000 from some way. And it's a whole lot easier to get your shipping right. Or rather, it's a whole lot easier if you get your shipping right. And I would just love to hear from you about how you come up with your shipping estimates and put that chart together sure yeah there's a lot that goes behind the scenes some people
2: like to just throw a magic number at it and hope it works out but that's asking for trouble <laughs> so having done this quite a few times i've got quite a process down but the crux of it is boiling down your costs into a couple main categories one of them is related to the actual fulfillment from a warehouse which you might call a fulfillment center to the end consumer the backer so all the costs that go into something leaving your warehouse in a given location to every possible location that these backers will live that that warehouse ships to. So that's what I'm referring to by fulfillment cost. Some people use different terms. I think it's helpful to just name terminology. Another term is freight. Freight is generally referred to as the bulk movement of items from one place to another. So compared to fulfillment, you usually think about a smaller package. You get something from Amazon. That's fulfillment. An Amazon truck carrying thousands of packages across the country on their 53-foot trucks, that's freight. So when your goods leave China, presumably in China, and they come to the U.S., the European Union, Australia, Canada, so on and so forth, United Kingdom, each of those bulk shipments of your goods, that's what I'm referring to as freight. So between freight, so the bigger shipment of things, and fulfillment, the smaller piece of shipment of things, you could generally call those together logistics. Now logistics can mean lots of things depending on what you're talking about but that's the terminology i'm using so in this particular case historically what publishers did was they took the freight the big shipment movement as part of the landed cost of a game so historically industry norms suggested that if you would set a manufacturer suggested retail price msrp of a game let's just pick simple numbers a hundred dollars because it makes it simpler for math if you took that game and you were to back, break that down to what goes into the $100, you would need to make your manufactured cost per unit plus your freight cost per unit. Those two together is landed at least at one-sixth of your MSRP. Or the flip side is if you were to add your MSRP, your sorry, your manufactured cost plus your freight cost together and then multiply them times six, that would be your set MSRP for distribution purposes. So let's just say $100. If that's the MSRP, effectively you just divide it by six. So if your freight cost, let's just pretend was $6 for the game and your game manufacturing cost was $10, that's $16. That means your ratio would be a little bit over 6X from your landing cost to your MSRP. Now this was based on historical norms that suggested that if you could achieve these targets Then when you're selling to distribution, where they're taking a 60% discount of the MSRP, so in that case, they pay you $40. The difference between that $40 and that roughly $16, which is $24, is the margin you have to play with to make profit on the game. So that $24 of margin there supports your upfront artwork costs, your development costs, along with all sorts of other administrative overhead costs and hopefully paying yourself a salary, On top of that, where things went crazy during the pandemic was this freight portion was blown to the moon and it went up five to seven times as much as it was prior to that. I just, before this podcast started, looked at our numbers. So in November of 2019, so before the pandemic came on the scene anywhere our total cost to book a 40 foot container from China to Michigan, where one of our primary warehouses is this includes an actual container cost. And it includes a bunch of things before the gets on the container after it gets off the container. But so the door to door price was $5,300 for a 40 foot container. And I would say that that was a little bit on the higher side too, back then, but this was before the holidays. So it factored into things then. Even all the way through May of 2020, I looked and saw another container, <laughs> booked a 40-foot container, and we got that one for just over $5,000. That's all-in door-to-door XWorks, which is a specific shipping term that says that the goods are made available at the manufacturer to pick up. In simple terms, it means the manufacturer sticks your games on pallets, someone else comes and picks them up, they handle everything until they deliver them where you ask them to be delivered. That's XWorks. It's the simplest way, in my opinion, to compare. Logistics costs. So we paid $5,300 in November of 2019, $5,000 in May of 2020, and then things went crazy town. By the time it was all said and done, we paid as much as $29,000 for the same thing, same exact shipping pattern. We didn't pay 29000 for all of them, but that was the most we paid. Now we had to book eight containers at a time, 40 foot containers going from China to the US, which meant that we were in a bad spot because if you only needed to get one maybe you get lucky or fortunate and get one that slipped in cheaper but when you need that many maybe you get one or two that come in cheaper but you also need a partner that can get you that many containers when containers are hard to come by so you just paid it and moved on so backing into all this you have a freight and fulfillment costs when you're basing the shipping chart where I was going to with that is historically the shipping chart did not account for the freight piece it only accounted for the fulfillment piece The reason was freight at the time historically was relatively low enough per game that if you had a normal sized game box let's just say catan carcassonne azul something that is not a gloomhaven sized box then the manufactured plus landed cost sorry the manufactured plus freight cost the landed could kind of absorb that freight and depending on the size of your game you might be paying a dollar a dollar fifty per game Small box game something like 60 cents on the freight costs that you didn't need to itemize that separately. And so just the fulfillment costs were the variable. If you live in Alaska, Hawaii, it's going to cost more to ship there than it is in the state you fulfill from. That's just simple gas costs and time costs for moving something around a region. But when the freight costs went crazy, then all of a sudden it threw out of whack that landed costs. What we've seen is that some publishers haven't known how to handle this increase in freight costs. Sometimes they're now ending up in that shipping chart that they're saying you as the consumer get to pay for the fulfillment costs, plus some or all of the estimated freight costs for each of those games, which changes the equation substantially. All this to say is that for the dawn of ULOS, We thought long and hard about these. Historically, we didn't put the freight cost at all in there. And again, we did not do that. This is just based on our business philosophy and our business model is that we wanted to instead just focus on the things that really matter to the end user. So what we did is we boiled everything down to what is the current expected freight cost per game to our primary warehouse in the U.S. And that's our baseline. So if you've got a number there, which in simple terms... Let's just say that number is $3. It's something close to that for our estimates. And I added some buffer into it. This is a game that is over six pounds, 12 inches by nine inches by three and a half inches tall, something like that. So let's say take that $3 per game. And so that's your base freight cost there. And what we did is then we took the estimated cost to fulfill to all of the U.S. locations. So depending on the warehouse that we use which we're still trying to decide exactly which one we'll do which complicates your calculations so you've got your in excel terms you put everything in maybe one column to compare all your prices if you were to use one fulfillment center and then in another and then you do some sort of calculation to compare the two and see what that looks like the reason i mentioned like that some fulfillment centers charge a global rate some charge a regional rate some charge a zip code rate or a state rate and so depending on which warehouse you're talking with It's not always an apples to apples comparison. So what you get to do is if you've been around for a while and you have historic data on where your customers come from, you can come up with the percentage of orders by zip code that factor into the region. In our particular case, both the fulfillment centers we're looking at using this time around in the US are using UPS, which made things a little bit simpler. So what I did was I went to the UPS website, I downloaded their current rate chart from the warehouse location, and it tells you every zip code range in the US from that warehouse and what zone they belong to, which is anywhere from zone one into zone nine within the Continental US. Now, if you're in Puerto Rico or Alaska, Hawaii, then those are outside of that. And I may have said it wrong, it might be just one through eight. And the way it generally works out is there's no zone ones, they're all two through eight. So I'm not exactly sure why they even have a zone one, but anyways, they're all zones two to eight. And then you take the historical percentage of orders. So we have ongoing website sales on our web store. We fulfilled multiple pre order campaigns in the last year of direct to consumer orders games things that didn't go to kickstarter and i looked at our last couple of kickstarters so i took a blended average of all of our recent campaign activity to get a good handle on what our most recent customer mix where they live in the continental u.s and assigned a percentage of our orders per zone so i apologize if i went through that too quickly but basically we had two different warehouses in the u.s we're considering using ones on the east coast and the other one is on the west coast and then i also compared it to our own since we have our own warehouse our own cost and so i actually took three but the two that are based on ups i took those blended averages which are going when you're going from the west coast to ohio versus the east coast to ohio those are different zones they come from and then i took the ups rates that were given to us by those fulfillment centers by zone And I added a 15% increase to assume that the cost will go up next year. 15% seems like the new safe estimate from year to year. In prior years, if you estimated a 10% increase, you were doing pretty well. But almost every fulfillment center I worked with last year did more than 10%, many, it was around 15%. In any case, then I compared those blended average shipping costs for our estimated game weight to those regions. And then we just had to pick the prices we wanted to put for the continental US. We could have charged by state, that does create a different customer experience. We try to keep it the same rate per country. So in any case, we weren't 100% sure which warehouse we would use, but we came up with something that made sense to account for the different scenarios at play. And that's only to factor into the US. So we have the base freight cost of $3 plus the estimated blended average fulfillment cost to fulfill a game from a warehouse in the US. And then we added, those had a 15% increase in there. And then you also have to charge for things, charge isn't the right word. You have to account for things such as the fees that you get hit by Kickstarter or by your pledge manager for the privilege of charging shipping. So if you charge someone $10 for shipping, and Kickstarter takes 8% of that. If you didn't account for that 80 cents that they just did, then effectively you only have 920 to speak of. And I think that's one of the simplest things a lot of creators miss is they don't account for the fee percentage on the shipping itself. And then if you're in another country where you have to collect taxes or even in the U S and if you're required to pay tax in different States, then you also have to account for the fact that if you pay 5% sales tax on that and they pay you 5% sales tax well, you're actually eating the 8% of the 5% <laughs> yeah. and it adds up when you get to large campaigns. So my spreadsheets end up accounting for all the fees on all the taxes and all the sh- shipping charges. And then you actually have a true cost of everything. So what I do is I take the U S blended average with the, every possible fee that goes into shipping, into it and i have that number and that's your baseline and then we take every single other country and our projected warehouses that we're using most of those we've established partners around the world we'll talk about the eu in a minute here that we're changing some things up potentially there but in any case you look at all the major countries and groups that you want to fulfill to and you do the same process for all those the blended average really matters in europe in particular you do the same thing and you take a blended average of your typical order distribution within the european union And then you average those rates down to what your European union shipping rate is. The reason I recommend that is there are some Island countries in the European union, Cyprus and Malta, that almost no one orders your games from there. If you don't do a blended average and you charge every single European union country separately, what you get to do is list poor, poor Malta, poor Cyprus as really expensive shipping rates. And then France, Germany, Italy are much cheaper. And the optics, are tricky when they think of themselves as one region. And if you're literally going to get two orders max in Cyprus, all that extra work just to put them on their own line and create some customer ill will, you're better off just taking a blended average of all of them and making them one set rate. Now, if there is a substantial difference with a populous country for board game sales like Germany, you might account for it differently where they make them cheaper. But if it's the flip side way where there's two people and it's more expensive, why are you wasting your time accounting for that separately? Just take that small hit on those two people and make everything simpler for people to read on this chart. You don't want it to be too busy where people are mixing up information and worse you're mixing up things yourself because you put too many data points on the chart.
1: Right, actually that that's a really good point that I wanted to maybe drill deeper on just for a brief moment. Keeping things simple on the surface doesn't mean they're simple behind the scenes, but it means that it's easy to understand for a customer that's looking to decide whether or not to back you or not, right? And so right. it's uh the total offer, talk about the offer which is, you know, the price of your Game plus the price of the shipping and all of the actual costs uh, associated and the value they're getting and you know the the game and so on and so forth, but um, the cost is a huge component of that. So for me to be able to understand shipping to the U.S. is ten dollars and the game is sixty dollars or whatever, then that means I'm going to have to pay seventy to actually get this project. It is true that you know I actually for Deliverance I have about. 2000 backers in the U S and we have, uh, I just, for the sake of things, I looked up Alaska and Hawaii as far as how many backers do we have in Hawaii? How many do we have in Alaska? Because those, I mean, to ship to Hawaii is very expensive (laughs) um, compared to the U S and we're actually also going to be shipping off the East coast uh, or close to it. And you know, with, with the fulfillment houses we're looking at, but uh, I have two backers in Hawaii. And one of them was a one dollar backer, and then I've got uh, one retailer in Alaska, and you know a total of nine backers in Alaska. So, in all likelihood, if uh, and I decided to charge nine dollars shipping, actually ended up being twelve dollars uh, of shipping that I had to adjust for um, other things. But the um, the total cost to the U.S. was uh, twelve bucks. But in actuality that or rather that's what i charged i also put some of the cost into the actual pledge level i i subsidized the cost of that shipping right but it's yeah, i would rather lose a little bit of money shipping two copies to hawaii than confuse everybody by saying if you live in the 48 you know contiguous united states uh states or whatever the ones that touch each other then it's this cost, but if you live in Alaska, it's that cost. In Hawaii, it's that cost. It's not worth the confusion. I would rather take a slight loss on that and have increased clarity because I'll sell many more units.
0: Poor, poor Hawaii, Alaska, and Puerto Rico. They've been through so much. We should uh, charge them more.
2: But on a serious note, I mean, it is extending a favor to them. There is the dark side of that, though. Some people will say, "Well, that's not fair. You're making me pay for the increased cost to Alaska." It's a never winning art. You can't win the argument no matter what. I mean, ultimately, only the people in your backyard are the cheap people to ship to it. Everyone else costs more. So what level do you draw that line of saying it's unfair that you're charging people a certain rate? Technically, if you get down to it, even shipping within the same state, you can have different amounts. So you have to pick a line somewhere. And I think it comes down to what makes the most logical sense for your business so that you don't make logical errors and that it's easy for customers to understand the offer.
1: And I I think that, that setting a buffer, like you mentioned, solves a lot of those problems. They're going to be just bottom line. There are going to be hidden costs that you didn't know you'd have to pay that all of a sudden it's like, Oh, $720 for this or that. It's like, Oh, you forgot. You have to actually get a laborer to load product onto a truck. And then that truck has to travel two miles to the port in China. That's going to be $600 or whatever. Uh, all of that is going to happen to you. There will be unforeseen costs. I mean, that's almost a guarantee unless you're, very experienced and you've been through this a lot and you know what to look for and you know what to plan for that buffer is just such an important technique whatever you think you need multiply that by 15 percent for shipping right right speaking
0: of a lot of unforeseen costs now a lot of our listeners will listen to us and they're getting ready you know they're still doing some preliminary research for their game uh before they go to kickstarter and a lot of them see these uh, reports, like just like we said earlier, that, that just show the container rate. You know, for example, right now I think the container rate from from China to U.S. is about it's somewhere in the seven thousand dollar range. What, how much more should someone tack onto that roughly, so they can get an idea of how much their shipping would actually be from start to finish?
2: It's a good question. Right now, I, I just got a quote in real time from my favorite website, Freitos. F R E I. G-H-T-O-S. If you don't use it to book freight, you should at least use it to compare prices.
0: <laughs> That's, that sounded like a great commercial.
2: <laughs> I use it all the time though. I used it for years before I ever used their service because for a long time, their prices were more expensive than my freight providers. And then with the pandemic, huh, funny enough, it changed. They became cheaper than my freight providers. So I'm like, why not? And I've booked at least five shipments on them now. So go figure. <laughs> but in Freightos right now, if I were to book a 40 foot container from our warehouse in China to our warehouse in Michigan, the actual container cost, just the cost of a 40 foot container is $8,700 today. Now, this is not West Coast, so you're looking at East Coast and then transferring it from the East Coast to Michigan. The extra cost on top of just the container cost push that total bill to $12,000. So $3,300 in other costs, which include in general cost to pick up a container. So inland trucking in China, inland trucking in the destination country in the US. And then there's all sorts of administrative fees, filing fees, so on and so forth. Then you also have insurance costs. And then there is supposedly money in there for profit to the parties involved as well. So when you hear container prices are dropping, that is a true statement. They are much less than they were before we paid $29,000 all in at his peak. The comparable price right now is 12000 You can say that's an incredible win. It is, but it's still more than double what it was at its highest for a very long time prior to the pandemic. So it's all relative. We're celebrating the wins, but also
0: still
1: grieving the losses.
0: (laughs) It's like our gas prices. They're going down, but they're still (laughs) twice as much as they were before the pandemic.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And whenever anybody tells me, oh yeah, gas dropped by 10 cents, um, I always think, you mean it's still up by $1.40. <laughs> right.
0: No, and we we're talking about poor California where everyone, everyone else's, their national average is dropping and California's is, is going up. In fact, I was telling Andrew, like for me, I, I do have to buy premium gas, um, but I'm paying uh, $5.19 is the cheapest I can find
1: in my area. Um, and then it goes up from there. So I'm sorry to hear yeah. that. Whew. That and they want you to buy a Tesla, but not charge it. Yeah, you're you're
0: supposed to buy a Tesla, but you can't charge it when you get home because we don't have enough power to charge everything in California.
1: I think enough people move out of California. There'll be, I guess, more power to go around, right?
2: So back to shipping. I I left off one thing I wanted to make sure that listeners can understand. (laughs) So when you're comparing one region to another, we used U.S. as the baseline because that's where the bulk of our freight is going. We take the estimated freight to other regions, which was for less than a container load in some cases on this project. And then the difference per unit gets added to the fulfillment costs. So to the United Kingdom to ship two pallets, the per unit cost is more expensive than shipping a full container to the US. That should be expected in most cases, sometimes just based on supply and demand that doesn't always hold true. But if your economy is a scale usually factor in, and in that case, when we're using our $3, that's just a rough number, estimate of freight costs per game to the U.S. and the U.K. is something like $5. Well, then that $2 difference gets tacked on to the estimated fulfillment costs for the European Union.
0: Is that also including the VAT tax or is that completely No, that's
2: separate, separate which we'll talk about in a moment. But then what we got to do is choose to establish a amount of money that we subsidized for each country. And it's based off of whatever we set the us at and we gave them a subsidy which we we cover some of the shipping cost ourselves and then we applied a similar dollar amount subsidy to almost every other region with a couple exceptions to account for more unpredictable delivery rates but that which is a reason that we're having this podcast discussion today has gotten ridiculous in the last some of you probably heard different topics on this but i would say and it is a little unfortunate we're this long into the podcast So for those who've listened this long you'll get to hear something that is cutting edge that virtually no one in the world, literally no one in the world knows right now. And that is that the European Union, specifically Germany does not want any companies that are not based in Europe to sell their goods at all in Europe. And here's why. For now the third or fourth year in a row, there's new legislation or rather new application of existing legislation being applied that makes it more and more difficult for you to sell goods there. Previously, it was, getting registered for VAT. And then it was getting registered for another level of VAT called OSS VAT. We're not gonna get into all the specifics of that here. And now, and then there was also these things related to name on the box, but now there's another thing related to financial representation at the time of import. So much to the point that I booked a shipment or helped a company book a shipment in February. Everything worked fine, China to Germany. We have VAT registration, E E O R I registration, everything goes fine, no problems whatsoever. We pay our VAT like we're supposed to, the government gets their money like they want. Fulfillment center gets their games, everybody's happy. Exact same warehouse, exact same fulfillment center, shipping over again. At the end of July, German customs rejects it. And they say, why? Because you're not based in the European Union. And I go, well, I've shipped for so many years, this has never been a problem. Why is that? And they say, you're not in the European Union, tough luck. Find someone else to import this. (laughs) Wow. <laughs> and then i talked to company after company after company after company at least 20 companies in europe and almost every company told me that's not right you should be able to import because you're vat registered and you have an eori number an eori number is a number that's registered with an european union database that gives you customs clearance rights it attributes any taxes that are attributable to your import to your vat number and you make make things right financially you do a financial settlement and pay up but overnight in july germany decided to no longer selective, selectively no longer accept any imports whatsoever from non-european union-based companies what does this mean and why did it change historically in their law they had a provision that said that a non-european union-based business could import a limited number of times in a calendar year If they have an EORI number, it was fine. The number is not written in the law, but what I found from other freight forwarders is that number is nine. If you ship nine or less times and you're not based in the European Union, there's never any problems. And then all of a sudden now, they reject it for a single shipment with zero exceptions. Even though their law says there is room for exceptions, they said, we're not going to make an exception. Too bad. Deal with it. I kept calling up other companies and they said, this isn't happening to us. What are you talking about? And then finally, I got corroboration from a very prominent board game. He's not a board game freight forwarder, but he's in the board game space a lot. Justin Bergeron from Arc Logistics, and he's running into the same thing too. The short and long of this is I've spent over 40 hours in the last eight weeks on an issue that generally takes 90 minutes max to resolve to get into Germany. And I think tomorrow the goods after eight weeks are finally being delivered how did they get delivered and what was the hold up there so they demanded an indirect representative to represent you if you're based in europe you are your own representative it's not a problem this is not anything to do with whose name is written on the box who's paying for the goods or so on and so forth what they need is a european-based business who's willing to accept financial risk if you are misrepresenting the value of the games that are being imported so much so that they're now challenging the invoices the commercial invoice value represented from china and making the manufacturer prove that you paid that much to them it's getting kind of ridiculous because if you know anything about how board game manufacturing works those invoices are like back of napkin things sometimes and they're not Mm -hmm. it can be hard to truly prove it all with a transaction to transaction so what does this mean a company in europe needs to take financial risk for you being truthful on your import. What happens is historically warehouses in Europe were willing to do this, but then many warehouses got bit when years later, the European Union customs agents audited them, found out something was not done right in the documents. They charged them back for an underpayment of taxes, and that fulfillment company was left holding the bag because the publisher may have gone bankrupt or no longer existed. So a lot of warehouses said, we're no longer going to take this financial risk, but that didn't matter in the past because Europe didn't care about this financial representative. And then what happened is because the warehouses stopped doing it, then the freight forwarders, or rather it's these European-based freight companies, the freight agents, they would take the financial risk. But then the buck passed along and they got bit and they stopped doing this too. So almost overnight, There is a situation where customs now requires fiscal representation there, and nobody is left that wants to provide fiscal representation. What it means in actual dollars is you get to find a third-party company that charges you for the privilege of, it's an insurance premium, of whether you're truthful or not. And this could range from $1,000 to $2,000 or even more. If you find the right companies, this will be part of their all-in pricing on bringing in the freight, but it's happened overnight where the vast majority of fulfillment networks or freight forwarding networks are not able to help you with this to the point that we had to go through four separate freight forwarding agents to try to find a company to help us none of them could and it got to the point we were frustrating the customs agent so much because we kept trying to resubmit it that they i think threw us to the bottom of the pile short and long of all this is it is a nightmare to get into Europe now. Not only do you have to be VAT registered, and if you're selling to other countries, OSS VAT registered. So between the two, you're paying over $3,000 in registration costs per year. For every import, you need to have a company that's willing to foot the bill with an insurance premium to say you're truthful in the value of your goods. That's probably going to be over $1,000 per shipment there. And if you're not being charged $1,000 up front, you're effectively probably still paying that through other fees you're paying that party. There are other le- elements to this as well I'm not going to get into today, but this is more of a PSA of add more margin to everything you're shipping to the European Union, because I would just generally say these all fall in the category of compliance costs. And if your shipment gets caught up in customs like ours did for eight weeks, you get charged daily fees for it sitting in an expensive warehouse, not being able to go where it needs to go. Thankfully, in our case, it was only two pallets. But if you had two containers sitting there, we would have been out thousands of dollars in unplanned
1: cost. That's pretty gnarly. So, uh, what you're saying is, pray and <laughs> hope that this doesn't happen to you. So, <laughs> so functionally, what we're talking about is, you know, some serious headaches that can happen. Normally, from my understanding, if you want to go into the European Union or any, you know, let's say non. United States, you know, m- well, well, we'll put it this way. If it's not, if, if you don't live there in that country, you have to ship a container and it's going to be, um, you're going to have extra headaches. If if you don't live in the European Union and you have to ship there, you need an agent that has, uh, that is VAT registered. VAT is, I believe it's value added tax. And that is going to get applied to any product as a tariff really to to sell there because you're going to make money with it. The government wants its pound of flesh and also wants to take care of its uh, citizens first uh, as is natural. So what would happen is the agent would absorb or would charge you money. They would initially absorb the the cost of VAT and they would then be able to reclaim it from the government because they are a citizen of.
2: Yeah. And actually they just bill you back right away and then you reclaim it. So they instantly get their money back and then you have to reclaim it at a later point.
1: Now, what you're talking about is the government wants that registered agent to be a citizen of the European Union or rather to live within the European Union. Right. And um, so there are a lot of VAT agents that are, for example, in the UK, you yourself um, act as a VAT representative for a limited number of companies. And there, there are others that can that can act as your VAT representative. And that's entirely
2: different. That's, uh, v- that's a <laughs> tax filing and payment agent. That's not a fiscal import or a record. And there's a delineation there. And I haven't found a single company that's willing to be both of those. One yeah. is an accounting function and the other is an import function.
1: So Happy Shops, if I want to, so I have, you know, I don't know how many games, probably, probably 200 games or so going into Germany. And that's enough that it's worthwhile. But at the same time, it's going to be more expensive than I thought. <laughs> yeah. Basically. Right. I if mean, the costs continue to go up. Right. Yeah. So happy shops is going to be my uh, company that delivers from Germany into the European union. And they are not from my understanding. They're not willing to act as that the person that will provide insurance to guarantee you know that somebody will pay the piper if i lied on my you know if, if the game was let's say more ex- or less expensive to produce or more expensive to produce sorry um maybe it was if the if the if the costs were not correct as far as what i paid the manufacturer if i misrepresented right. that.
2: and the reason there and i don't think i'm violating anything when i say this is that they've experienced this the hard on the wrong side of the equation before and they've learned the hard way that if they put themselves in that position, they are financially on the hook. And so it's an insurance premium for them and they're not willing to do that. Financially speaking, other companies that might today be willing to do it might not in the future if they get bit with it. I have heard from multiple European partners that these customs audits are increasing and turning up more issues than they have in the
1: past. So I was just wondering, you know, what are what are the options for somebody that's considering, you know, because th- th- that's where it comes all comes down to brass right. tacks. Is like, are you willing to do business in the European Union, or are you, or do you want to skip it and then miss out on the the sales that would come from the European Union, and and that's kind of where rubber meets the road for me personally as a publisher right. that is about to ship a game. I've already committed to to doing this thing in the EU and in other areas. I guess let's let's start there.
2: Yeah, those are great questions. So in simple terms, let's just say you've got $20,000 worth of items you're selling into the European Union. And if you're bearing what is effectively going to be around $4,000 worth of, of compliance fees for the privilege of selling that. So you have to just take $4,000 off. there. So let's just take some simple margins. Let's just say even on a high level that you made $10,000 of profit on the $20,000, which you're probably not. To take $4,000 out of that, just right out the gate, is a substantial number. So you have to really crunch your numbers. In US, you have nowhere near that high of compliance costs. You're going to pay sales tax in the state where you live and in states where you sell above a nexus of number of transactions or an amount of dollars or if you have an employee who lives there. But you're only paying 5 to 10% on limited sales there compared to 20% on everything. So your other options, if you want to fulfill into Europe, and here's a basic number, if you have more than 500 customers in the European Union for a pledge price of $60 or more, that's a real simple number to throw out there, you might want to import into Europe and figure out VAT registration, figure out this fiscal representative, and fulfill there because it's a better customer experience for your customers and actually financially, it will make sense to do it at that scale. But if you've less than 500 backers and if you have a cheaper game in particular, you should really be looking at some other options. Your other options are threefold. The other options, actually technically you could look at four but the fourth one's gonna be harder. The threefold generally involve uh, fulfilling from the United Kingdom, fulfilling from your house, or anywhere in your own country, one of two different ways. I'm going to start with the United Kingdom because I think this is a better option for most publishers with a smaller number of orders going to Europe. You can use either Spiral Galaxy or ShipQuest, sometimes you know them as GamesQuest, and they both have the same offering as follows. They're no longer part of the European Union, but they are registered with a special treatment of VAT, that you can ship from the United Kingdom into the European Union with the taxes prepaid. And for the privilege of doing that from the United Kingdom, you pay the company, Spiral Galaxy or ShipQuest, 5% of the amount of VAT that they collect on your behalf. Effectively, it's fairly nominal as far as the tax bill you're paying on top of the amount you already would have legally had to pay on VAT to Germany, France, etc. The difference in cost, though, is the airmail cost from across the water from the United Kingdom to France compared to fulfilling France within France. If you do compare the two numbers, the cost of all the compliance to fulfill directly within the European Union compared to the airmail costs from the United Kingdom plus paying the fee to use to rent someone else's VAT filing on your behalf. If you have less than 500 backers, you're probably cheaper off using the United Kingdom option. The other option is to fulfill, let's say you're in the United States from your house. The two options, there's the most unfriendly option. You just ship it using whatever method you feel like. The backer in Europe gets hit with the tax bill upon arrival plus a duty or a fee of tax assessed by the postal carrier for the privilege of collecting money. That can be 10 euros, it could be 15 euros. So they do not like that customers because they don't know how much it will be and it's unpredictable. The other option you have is to similarly register for the special tax treatment, just like the United Kingdom partners do, called IOSS VAT. It's going to run you about fifteen dollars to $1,800 per year to do that, and you can prepay that in advance, write your number on the package, and mail it to the European Union. Similar to the United Kingdom, they won't pay anything upon arrival. The difference there is you have that fifteen dollars to $1,800 in sunk administrative fees, plus an Extra cost to airmail from the US to the European Union. So, in that case, in almost all scenarios, it's still cheaper to do the United Kingdom option to have a more friendly customer solution because the sheer distance from the United Kingdom to Germany is much less than the United States. So, as a creator, you're faced with how friendly is this for my customers? And is my project big enough where it makes sense to go full blown? import into Europe? Or should I use someone else's numbers in the United Kingdom to simplify my life? And I've decided this last option is probably the best option for most people, especially if you're just starting off or you don't want to have to spend a lot of administrative time worrying about these things. Leverage the existing partner networks in the United Kingdom that have this down, that do a good job on fulfillment. Both ShipQuest and Spiral Galaxy are very reputable companies. Save yourself a lot of headaches.
1: That's a it really uh, kind of makes me feel better for, for, you know, for myself, I decided that I'm willing to bear the additional burden so that people can get games. It's to me kind of a, an important thing. I, I decided for me personally with deliverance, I want people to be able to get games in those places and I want to sell more copies there. I decided that I really wanted to give people the um, the best opportunity to get my games. I also wanted to really try to gain that experience and, Do things that are hard because I needed to know how to do them and, you know, uh, for future games and that sort of thing. So, to me, as much as it is going to be a pain, it's also an investment into knowing what to do and even knowing why maybe I wouldn't do it again or what I will have to do in order to make sure that it goes smoothly next time. And so, those things are really you know things we have to kind of think through i love that idea of you know using and and that's i might actually end up using the uk as my european hub if somebody wants one of my games in the future i'll have a lot more people in the uk that are going to buy than you know than the rest of the eu combined probably unless i translate into a local language but it's it's something that it at least gives the people the option to get the game and it's going to make life simpler on on my side um, for managing this thing, but now I have a question related to. So I looked at my Australian orders, and I've got uh, which I know you know is not the EU, but um, keeping it simple, I've got Australian orders about 90 games going to Australia, and that's not really enough. Certainly not enough for a container. You know, I I'm sure I could probably find an option that was economically worthwhile enough that we could fulfill Australia and New Zealand and you know, be break even at the very least. But there are people that have 25 games that go to Australia. You can't really afford to be region friendly at 25 games. You're going to lose money. Isn't that right?
2: Typically, in the case of Australia, you do luck out to an extent. There's a great fulfillment partner in Asia, VFI, VAT. They stand for VAT-free. VFI Asia, VAT-free in Asia. But they reach a lot of... More difficult to get to regions, and that includes Australia. What you can do is take your games from your manufacturer by truck in China to VFI. And then they will bulk pack your games along with 10 other projects games to on a container to Australia. They will ship them all to Etherworks, a partner in Sydney. And then you'll get reduced transportation costs to Australia as a result. The only downside to that is it is a little slower. You're waiting until they reach a critical mass of goods. If you're the first project in after they ship their last container to Australia, you're going to be waiting for everyone else. So you just have to kind of expect it to be an extra month longer than it would have been otherwise. But just assume the worst. Assume you're going to be the first batch of games waiting for everyone else. They'll ship about once a month. So they'll take everything that just kind of collected in the last month, put them on however many pallets that is, they'll book the freight, and they spread the cost evenly across all of the partners that are there and they bill you back for it.
1: That's awesome. So what if somebody sold, let's say, 25 games into the EU?
2: You're going to want to either... Actually, there is another option. I should for, I should have mentioned this. VFI now does also have an option to prepay that, but it's only for really light packages. So if you have a really small game, that's another option to consider. If it's a, a heavy game, Options are more limited there. In most of those cases, unfortunately, the customer is just going to have to pay taxes upon arrival because it doesn't make sense to go to Herculean efforts to get 25 games imported into the country. That's going to be like four cases of games.
0: Would there be much of a difference if, let's say, because I mean, most people are going to manufacture their games in China. That's pretty much a given. Um, some will be doing it in their own countries depending on the cost if a game is manufactured in eu is there much of a cost difference
2: yes there is but there are depends on your components there are really good manufacturers in china but almost all of them still do injection molding in china so if you're doing just cards punch boards box rules and you have a large concentration of customers in the european union you might just consider printing it there but once you get into plastic trays especially plastic minis it's going to end up being quite a bit more expensive.
1: Even things like DICE, you know, anything that's plastic is, uh, Ludofact is a company that I got a quote from, and um, they were a little more on the expensive side overall than some of the Chinese partners. But I thought I could be right in the EU and kind of avoid a lot of this trouble of importing if we just made it in Germany. And it just wasn't a good fit for us because we had to have plastics. They wanted us to use wood for the dice, but wood miniatures aren't gonna aren't gonna fly. I guess a pun because my miniatures have wings. Right,
2: I thought that's what you're getting at. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't doing that on purpose, but
1: I'm glad it went there. So let's see as we kind of come in for a landing here to continue with the the wing puns. What advice would you have? What a what is something that's extremely important that we haven't talked about yet that you really want to get across? Is there any parting advice that you would have for our listeners? on the subject of logistics.
2: Sure, so as much as I like Freytos and I recommend using them in general, I wouldn't use them to import into the European Union for the foreseeable future. The reason is you're more limited on who you're, it's a marketplace. It's harder to predict who you're working with and you might find yourself in a challenging spot like we did in the import in Europe. Now you could book it in there, but you're gonna have to do more legwork to potentially change agents before the goods arrive and change things up. But I do think it's better, even if it costs a little more right now, to work with a reputable company in Europe that has successfully, in the last three to four weeks, imported multiple companies' games into the country where you want to import. And make sure that it's a non-European union company that does the imports and see if there's any problems with them getting in or not. Because if they're not having that experience, you don't want to be the surprise. It's going to cost you a lot of money.
1: I feel like Calypso from Pirates 3. Name them. (laughs) What is the name of
2: a company? I'd use ARC Global, A-R-C Global. Justin Bergeron is a great resource. He's great to work with. His company is a little pricier. He knows that. But right now they have a good option to get into the European Union. They had to change their longstanding relationship because their partners in Europe aren't able to get non-U.S. companies in anymore. So in literally the last three weeks, they've changed their partnerships and it's working again so far. Now, it could change. Awesome. And if it depends when you listen to this. It, it could be different in three or six months. So you need to ask good questions. Fantastic. So, so Andrew, yes, that's who you should use to book your freight.
1: Awesome. So that would be arcglobal.us is probably where. We'll put that in the show notes as well. Justin's and
2: email, I can put it here. He's kind yeah. of found this niche of doing board game specific yeah. freight, which is a kind of a interesting.
1: Logistics to all countries or, or at least freight containers and that sort of thing. Yes. But, they can help book freight anywhere in the world. So that's fantastic. Um, very good. Well, I, I really appreciate that. I appreciate the time. I'm going to listen to this episode myself, probably twice. Sure. You know, how, how can people find you? How can people find what you've been working on? You know, if they have any further questions or if they want to support what it is that you're doing now. I
2: work for Thunderworks games. My email is Kirk K I R K at thunder works with an s games with an s.com you can reach me that way our project Donavulos is live right now if you wanted to take a look in the past i did a lot more consulting for all sorts of things logistics related right now my time is pretty limited if you did have something you really wanted me to take a look at uh, you're welcome to shoot me an email and I could let you know if I have availability or not to look at it. But please don't take offense if I say I'm, I'm full up at the moment. Uh, usually I can take on very limited engagements in a season. I have four little kids.
1: <laughs> That's right. And two of them are <laughs> twins.
2: Yeah, twin one-year-old girls. And
1: they had a very easy birth that did not complicate your life at all. Only Didn't...
2: 77 days in the NICU. Yeah,
1: so it was intense. So very good. Well, thank you so much, Kirk, for just taking the time. Again, Donovan Lewis on Kickstarter right now. It's going to be live for, gosh, I guess uh, when this podcast goes live, you'll have about a week left to, um, uh, to jump on it. But really appreciate your time and just the wealth of knowledge that you brought. It was, it was like a fire hose of excellent information
2: yeah i apologize you're going through it quickly but it is tricky if we showed spreadsheets it'd be maybe easier but maybe over more of a too <laughs> <laughs> and
0: with that said that's all the time we have for this week's episode of crowdfunding nerds a big shout out to kirk dennison operations manager at thunderworks games thunderworks plural games and check out their current kickstarter Dawn of ulos You can check that out at dawnofulos.com, or you can go to Kickstarter and do a direct search for Dawn of Ulos. And if you guys have any questions, um, because Kirk did cover a lot, but if you do have any questions about about shipping or anything in general to your Kickstarter or crowdfunding uh, board game you'd like to do, visit our Facebook group at facebook.com forward slash crowdfunding nerds community. We have a lot of people on there. Um, What's our current (laughs) subscriber count, Andrew?
1: uh 726 people
0: Woo. at this moment we got 726 fans who are also in the same boat as you or beyond that are on various stages of their kickstarter crowdfunding project that can help you and answer your questions you have about your project and get you going and with that said always stay cool stay classy and stay new